Hello and welcome to All Villa, No Filler, a podcast all about Aston Villa, the world's greatest football team. Unai Emery experienced his first ever nil-nil in the Premier League as Villa drew away at Everton. It was a thrill-a-minute game. More on that in a sec. George is away this week, so I'll have a mouth-watering spicy question for our guest this week, Paul Webb, who is chair of the football team of the London Lions. Webbo, it's great to have you back on the show. Good evening, Frankie. How are you, my friend? Not too bad. All the better for seeing you on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, the game so. together. Yeah, it was a. I'd like to say it was a lot of fun, uh, but the game itself was a, a difficult watch. I think is probably the best way to sum it. But yeah, no, great to see you, mate. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to hang out with the London Lions. Um, though uh, we didn't go to the Yak Bar in Elephant and Castle, which is usually where we would hang out to watch a Villa game, and by not going to the Yak. We ended up not seeing Christian Perslow, who the former CEO, who was actually there um, on that Sunday. Interesting, uh, interesting old tale with Perslow, isn't it? He seems to have been he's been to a few Villa games, and yeah, yeah. It seems yeah. like he has uh, really taken Villa to heart uh, during his stint at the club, um, and is desperately trying to keep relevant within the fan base. I don't know if he's hoping for a job in the future yeah. or what it is, but considering how many clubs he's had. I don't remember seeing him going to fan bars and going into away ends at other clubs. So, yeah, so he's obviously caught the bug that is Aston Villa and who can blame him for that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we've caught the bug and we've been living with it for 30-odd years now. Um, most of that time, not the best of fun. But yesterday, uh, that was also not the best of fun, um, given that it was a nil-nil draw. What did you think about the game? Uh I think it, it was a fair result. Probably 1-1 one, one would have been absolutely bang-on result. Calvin lewin should really be taking that chance he had. And we can talk about the wondrous save that was Emmy Martin, there when, especially when he was facing the wrong way at one point, which was a fantastic image <laughs> doing the rounds today. And I think we did enough to score a goal. I don't think we were at our creative best yesterday. I felt the whole game was just stop-start. Mm. And it felt like uh, Sean Dice... They haven't kept many clean seats recently in the Premier League in the last couple of games. They're on the back of a few bad results, Everton and Dice was like, we are not losing this game today. And that's what he has created his managerial career doing at Burnley and uh, and has continued at Everton. So, scrappy game, not a lot of quality. Or It just felt like every time we got momentum, there was then another one or two minute stoppages. I think there was three head injuries or something with um, people bleeding on three different occasions. There was obviously a long VAR check. It just didn't feel like there was ever a five-minute spell of actual football yeah. from either team. It just felt like it was very stop-start, and that suited Everton a lot more than it suited Villa. And I think my main takeaway from it is you look at the Sheffield United at home game, Burnley at home game, and yesterday we are going to come up against this quite a lot now. It's as if... Mm that it's a sign of respect in a way to Villa is actually teams aren't are, are a little bit worried to come at us. They realise if they come at Villa, we have the skills, we have the power to just rip teams apart. That mm. they're actually now treating us with a huge amount of respect, which is something completely new in the last in the Premier League. Probably it hasn't happened in the Premier League for God knows how long. So teams are treating us with a lot more respect than we're used to. And that's something that Unai and the squad are going to have to find a way 
to break these teams down because we've got a lot more fixtures that are going to be like those three that I mentioned. Mm. And if we are going to be genuine top four contenders, you've got to find ways to win against teams that are set up in that fashion. So it's a learning curve. I'm not doom and gloom by any stretch of the imagination. A point away from home against a team fighting for their lives is at this point in the season not a terrible result. But yeah, it's one of those games we'll struggle to remember at the end of the season, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. It definitely felt like um, it had uh, followed a similar pattern to a few away games we've had where the first 10 minutes, it feels like that is the opportunity when Villa go away from home for the away team to go at Villa before Villa can set into their pattern of play and start dominating the ball. And Everton did get at us and almost worked an opportunity that could have led to a goal. That didn't happen. We rode out that storm. And then I think I feel from like the 10th minute through to the 25th minute when Alex Moreno scored the disallowed goal, Villa were just growing and growing and growing. Yeah. It just felt like there's a goal coming here. You could just feel it. Everton yeah. weren't handling Alex Moreno out on the left. It felt like Seamus Coleman didn't know whether to go to him. Jack Harrison didn't know whether to track him. So Moreno was causing them a lot of problems. But it felt like, um, you know, when the disallowed goal happened, I compare it to what happened against Bournemouth. Where Do you remember when against Bournemouth, Leon Bailey scored... And then about 10 minutes later, um, well, for the next 10 minutes, Villa were all over Bournemouth and we scored again through Diego Carlos. And that goal got disallowed by, you know, uh, Luca Dean's hair follicles being offside. But the check went on for like three, four yeah. minutes and that disrupted our momentum and suddenly Bournemouth were on top for the rest of that half. Yeah, Same thing happened again against Everton, I thought, where this check went on for so long that it almost kind of disrupted our flow. So that kind of leads to wider questions about VAR, really. And, um, you know, I don't tend to talk about VAR very much in this podcast because it's a very boring topic. Referees as well, I tend to avoid. But um, i got to say, like, that VAR check yesterday added on to the one we had at Bournemouth. I mean, bloody hell, it was pretty annoying, wasn't it? It was very annoying. And I, I understand why you would be reluctant to get into the VAR debate because you can end up not talking about Villa at all. You end up talking about referees and VAR. But I think... For me, the the Premier League have got themselves into a real weird position at the moment in time. That the, the, the yesterday's offside was clearly offside. Mm. It should not have taken them as long as it took them to do it. And you're absolutely right. There's you're now affecting the game of football, the actual quality of football, by the amount of time you are taking to make these decisions. Mm. And I think for me, when they brought in technology into football, it shouldn't be about decisions that are debatable. It should be about factual. So I actually don't have any issue with VAR being used for offside decisions. Mm. I have an issue with yesterday's decision in that it took so long. It looked like they were then reviewing the next phase of play as if they'd cleared the offside. So they wasted exactly. 20 seconds, which isn't a lot of time. But in a game of football, it kills the momentum. Yeah. During that period, Everton would have been over to the touchline. They would have been chatting to the manager. Exactly your point about why the danger at this minute is Moreno. So let's just drop a little bit deep. And they, they had essentially a mini half time whilst that VAR check's going on. If, it, if the lino had just flagged and it's instantly given, they haven't got time to reset. And then the next phase of play should still be an advantage. So not only did we have our goal disallowed, but you're absolutely right, Frankie, it killed all our momentum. And it just feels like at this moment in time, the Premier League, and I think it probably stems back to that Luis Diaz goal, mm. scared to make a decision at the minute. And something needs to change, whether it's giving the referees on the field more authority or something like that. But the way 
football is at the moment, it is when we watched the Middlesbrough game, for example. Yeah. It scared the hell out of me because there was no VAR for the offside trap that was we play. And I'm like, the way we play, we're almost guaranteed a VAR to check every single <laughs> time that the opposition go forward. But it was it is a much more enjoyable experience. Not yeah. you can celebrate, you can everything that you want as a fan are built up in those instant moments. Mm. So I do think VAR should have a responsibility to just ask themselves. Are we making this enjoyable for fans? And yeah. at the moment, that's never been into consideration. So whereas I get what they're trying to achieve with making sure every decision is 100% right, you're mm -hmm. never going to reach that pinnacle. And at the minute, their attempts to get like half a percent better outcome is taking away like 5 10% of the enjoyment factor. And I think that's a real shame. And if it continues down that road, that's even more worrying. So... Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. It, it killed a lot of momentum. And there was a few other moments. That's what I was saying about a stop-start. It just felt no, neither team could get momentum at all yesterday. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're just on the VAR topic, just how when I think of the World Cup, now they've had VAR at two World Cups now. And on both occasions, I don't really remember it being that intrusive in that, you know, it went on for ages and ages. And partly at the last World Cup, they had automated offsides. So I can't help but feel that a lot of the offsides or the VAR checks that are taking forever tend to be these the lines being drawn yeah. and these sort of toenail offsides. And that is what most of the time is leading to VAR being such a hindrance and so annoying. Um, but like I say, it felt like at the World Cup, it was very speedy and I barely noticed it. So yeah, uh, so maybe, maybe automated offside... Could be what helps solve it. But then again, I'm not sure I massively trust the referees in this division. You know, I think of the Sheffield United game where there were three checks in the first 15 minutes that seemed to drag on forever yeah. as well. Um, I don't know. There is a genuine debate to be had there, I think. But, you know, focusing on the rest of the game, I guess, um, you know, uh, I think one thing I thought was that I think Villa's build-up play, the confidence we have playing at round of the bat, we just cannot take for granted how excellent we are on the ball nowadays. I thought building up from the keeper all the way up to the final third, we were actually at times exceptional, but it was just that final third where there was kind of a, you know, dare I say the Steven Gerrard quote, lack of, lacking a moment in magic or something. But it just felt like there was, it just wasn't that one moment, was there? Yeah, no, there wasn't. There, and I think you're absolutely right. The way we build out from the back now, teams, if they do press us, and there are a few examples where we've got it, when we've made mistakes, and obviously there was one yesterday with that early challenge, which led to, I think it was Anana going in hard on Martinez, where there'd been that poor exchange was it between Martinez and Kamara, I would have assumed, or maybe Dougie Louise. And, that, and similar to what you said earlier, that was within the first few minutes. So it does feel like we take a minute or two to just find that rhythm. But once we, as you said, once we got into it, we pass it around lovely. Teams then get into a little bit of a scared, do we press, do we not? And then they end up just allowing us to hold the ball at the back. Mm -hmm. And something that we do amazingly well is that we don't panic. You know, like Martin is will happily sit on the ball for 30 seconds. And there's so much movement or so many trigger moments that are happening that it looks like, Nothing is happening, but each one of those players is so well drilled. They know what's going to happen next. Mm. And it is a joy to watch at times where we build out. But I do think yesterday, the way that they defended, they were in on us very quickly. I felt Tarkovsky 
had what a Tarkovsky style game where he was very brutal at times, but he wanted to do a number on Ollie Watkins. And I think he did, and he did do a number on Ollie Watkins. He kept a clean sheet. Watkins got booked. Watkins was, there was a corner in the last second that then got overturned to a foul by Watkins on Tarkovsky in the middle. And I just felt that Everton sat back to a level that they were able to then just turn their own little mini press on us that we rushed as we got into the final third. Mm. So whereas we were really, really methodical, really nice, passed it around and got really creative up to a certain point, it then felt like there was four or five request, um, occasions where, say, McGinn was passing it out to the wide and it would just go out for a throw-in. It didn't feel like we were fully linked up, but like we were, the wingers were trying to push on and the passes weren't quite so. So I don't know what it was yesterday. Just when we got to that final third, it felt like we were panicking a little bit, especially yeah. in comparison to how you said how we were so patient on the ball. Didn't feel like we had that patience in that final third. And I think a fit Tielemans yesterday would have actually been the difference because he, certainly before he got this latest injury, he was really looking a sharp player. And he, yeah. on the ball, some of his through balls were beginning to look excellent. He's got a great vision. So I actually think if he'd have been fit yesterday, 100% fit, he would have made a huge difference. Mm. Yeah. And how much do you think we missed uh, Pal Torres? Because, I, I mean, personally, I thought, uh, Longley played had a good, really good game, and at the end he had a uh, a moment where he stretched out to block a Jack Harrison cross into the area, which was really crucial. Actually, um, I thought he played well, considering that he doesn't get to play that often. His distribution obviously is not comparable to Pal Torres, but yeah. how much do you think we we missed Torres? Uh, I think you've got to give credit to Longley, I think especially when you look at his stats yesterday. Yeah, that's he had quite a bit of a, a really, really good game. Like he won most of his aerial duels and all this sort of stuff, and hmm. um, but. When you get the ball so often and we're passing it around at the back, Torres is exceptional. Yeah, yeah. I I'm still not his biggest fan. If I'm, I sort of grew up uh, with my dad loving centre halves, like the big Hugo Ekiogs of this world, Gareth Southgate. So still got a mindset of a defender should defend, and then if they can play football, great. So I'm still behind modern times. I'm trying to. Get to my head, and I don't think <laughs> Torres is the greatest defender. I think he got like he's been done too often down the wing, and he's not the fastest. But actually, I need to accept that he hasn't been bought just for his defending ability because what he offers on the ball, yeah, is is genuinely like having another sort of attack, like a midfielder in defense. You know, he has got a, a range of passing that none of our other defenders has, and I think Conza's improving by working with Paul Torres. I think Conza's improved a lot this season and I think that will only be because he's working with somebody as high profile and high quality as Torres. So I think it'd be harsh to say we, to be harsh on Longley, say he had anything other than a really good game, Mm -hmm. but he's more of that defender I know in that he is more of a defender. But yeah, when we're going forward and when we get so much of the ball, you want Torres on the ball because he can go into midfield and he's like an extra midfielder and then it just allows some more space. So, yeah, we from an attacking perspective, I think we would have created one or two more chances if we'd had a different centre-back player, which is slightly odd to hear. But, yeah, yeah, we do miss him. And I think when he's back fit, I'm ho- I haven't really heard, Frankie, if he's going to be back fit after this little mm. mini international break or winter break we're having. But I really hope after the cup game, that he's back and fully fit. And then for the next one of the games, uh, he, if he's in the team, you, you're a lot more confident that we're going to get three points every game. 
Absolutely. Um, I, I love him. I, I, he's a very Spanish-style player, isn't he? Comfortable on the ball, technically wonderful. Um, and he's almost like an extra attacker, starts so many attacking phases. And I think in the Burnley game, when he came on for Longley for about half an hour, all right, Burnley had a red card. But I think that when he came on, um, Villa's attacking, particularly down the left, seemed to go up a, a notch. And yeah. Partly because he's so confident at just pressing forward the ball and releasing that pass at the right time. He's him... Ramsey and Moreno. One day, those three will be fit at <laughs> yeah. the same time, and we will finally get to see the three of them grow. And they could be crucial for us as this season progresses, if they can all stay fit and that left-hand side comes alive again, as it did in the second half of last season. Um, but another player I want to sort of bring up, because I've seen a lot of chat around him, um, Moussa Diaby. Now, I yeah. think he's a fantastic player, Moussa Diaby. I think his movement's brilliant. His touch is great. He's, he's so threatening because his move, his speed and intelligence is so good. But um, what what at the moment, he's not in the best of form. He's not in like the peak elite form that he, he's shown at times at Villa. And part of the reasoning, I think, for that is because traditionally he's played on the right wing. So he spent a lot of time at Bayer Leverkusen playing as a right winger, one of the best right wingers in all of Europe. Now, this season, he's playing in a whole new role in a whole new league with a whole new team and a new manager and a new approach. So I, what the way I look at it is that I feel like he's going through a natural probably dip just where he's, you know, getting used to this role that he's playing and maybe he hasn't got a goal and it's maybe it's got to him a little bit. And But it's I think I, I just think it's a bit of a natural process where he's just adapting to this role, learning from it. And, you know, in a year's time, we'll be like, Oh, look at him! You know, we forget about all that. Um, I mean, what do you what what do you think about sort of some of the questions around Diaby's form at the moment? I think they're. Um, I think for me, the reason that we're asking questions is because of how well he started his career. If you look at some high-profile players over, at, like say Man United, signed some wingers, and Man United signed some strikers who didn't hit the ground running, and then you get all these random memes going around about they don't have any assists and any goals. He scored with the first attack we had of the season. So he scored that volley against Newcastle. So he hit the ground running so, so well that he was always going to not, he's not going to play that level every single week. Mm. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. He's absolutely just developing. He's only 24, still young. First time in the Premier League. It's uh, the hardest league in the world in terms of the standard, I mean, this season's probably slightly different when you're playing the likes of Luton and Sheffield United, albeit we didn't beat Sheffield United, but there is a little bit more of a, a drop these days to the bottom of the league, to the top. But every game is really, really challenging. Yeah. And he's not playing in the same position every week. He's not playing with the same um, front three every week and it's ever changing so it's, it's going to get get time and also yesterday he didn't have his best game but you actually look at the critical moments in the game he's still involved it's exactly. not like he's going absolutely missing or anything like that he just started the season so so well that i think we probably were a bit naive to assume he was going to stay at that level all the time i think just in general, I think the last few weeks have caught up with us. I think yeah. you get that this is the first season a lot of them have played in European football. And it's absolutely remarkable to be, what, are we pretty much 11 on points with Man City still after the same amount of yeah, games? Just or, behind, yeah, yeah. Just behind. So it, it felt, it, I do feel like in the last two, three games, we've looked a little bit leggy. Mm. And then you look at, the bench essay is great to have Tielemans coming back, 
But when Ramsey's injured and stuff like that, the bench is beginning to look a little bit threadbare. Mm. This free weekend has come at the most fantastic time. We then go into a really difficult cup game, but I still imagine there'll be a few players rested for that. Will be a really hard game away at Chelsea. So you hope come February that we're as close to a full squad as we can be. There's even mm-hmm. talks of where uh, Emmy Wendia coming back in February. Albeit, I don't imagine he'll be game ready for another month or so. So I just think the RB is we've probably overutilized him. We've yeah. overplayed him for a player who's just come into this, this season. And I imagine when we signed him, we obviously had Emmy Buendia in the squad fit. So there, there would have been a rotation in mind for those sort of players. You would hope, obviously, Ramsey came back against Brighton didn't he? and then re-injured himself and was out for a long time. So when you're making those plans, Emmy Buendia, Ramsey, they were in the mindset of how do we get... Um, Diaby into the flow of it and you can sort of pick and choose the games that he gets unleashed in mm-hmm. and we haven't had that chance so no worries for me on Diaby the, the guy's already shown what he can do uh, I've got absolutely full confidence that he'll go on to be an absolutely world-class player he's just yeah but rightly called out he hasn't been on his best form for the last few games but I've got no doubt that he will be back to his best form very very soon after this break that he's got coming up yeah, totally. That's very well said, I think. And, um, you know, you talk about like form and you kind of hinted at it there. You know, Villa, um, we had a fantastic December, really. You know, when I am everyone a Premier League manager of the month and it was well deserved. But um, just towards the end, there was that draw with Sheffield United where towards the end, I remember I was in the stadium for that and I, we did t- start to look quite leggy in that last 10 minutes yeah. in that game. Um, and then, of course, there was a Manchester United game, uh, 2-0 up, lose 3-2. Just got over the line against Burnley. Um, and now, you know, beat Middlesbrough. Uh, and now the Everton result. So our form's not, you know, quite at the amazing level it has been this season. Yeah. Um, part of the reason, I think, is Decemberitis, just the sheer volume of games you play in December. I think it caught up with us towards the end of the month. And I think the second half at United, we just didn't have the energy levels to get up there, really. Um, yeah, I think we, yeah, I think we made a hash of the man. We didn't, we didn't game manage that very yeah. well at all. That was just some of the uh, probably one of Emery's few mistakes. It was very clear we were. I think they scored within the first few seconds, and then it was given offside. But we just didn't make the right changes in that game, and the game just we were almost we were a bit fortunate to be two 0 up really in that game, and but we didn't manage it well. But no. you, you you look, you're absolutely right. December is a a month where things can go horribly wrong. Yeah. Because if you get into a spiral of defeats because of the quick nature of the games, you could end up, you lose four games and it's only been 10 days. So we haven't had that. We've had a fantastic month. And you also just look at our, all the league, who's been, who has played scintillatingly well in December? Nobody. Wolves have won three games, but they had a few bad results before that. Nobody plays well game after game in December. It is a an attritional month where you just pick up the points you can. And when you look at, on paper, where we thought we were going to get points from, we probably didn't expect to get six points from Man City and Arsenal at home. No. You would have expected us to get three points against Sheffield United. So when you accumulate all the points we've had, we're well above where we would have started this season. So yeah. I, I don't... It's, a, again... I know you and I joke about it. The old Twitter world, the fa- Facebook world of Aston Villa fans is quite a 
bewild- bewildered in place at times. <laughs> um, and we are far above where we all expected to be. But that yeah. also doesn't mean we can't be critical of the individual performances. On oh, yeah. yeah. End by game. I think so. I don't I hate it when people just turn around. So oh, you can't moan about that because look where we are. And then these, well, if somebody's, if we've had a bad performance, you can still talk about a performance in a negative way. Yeah. Uh, as well as accepting we're in a very positive position. And I don't think yesterday was overly negative. I do just think it was a real tough game mm-hmm. uh, that we were really competitive in. I don't yeah. think we we could have easily stole three points. I think a win for either team would have been generous. Um, and we're in a fantastic position. It's now, uh, I was, it's now really important. How do we use this break? And I see that Moreno was in Dubai by the time I think I'd got home from the pub last night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're having a break. They're, the players are utilising it. And how exciting is it that Unai Emery is going to be given 10 days to master plan the rest of the season? Because mm-hmm. he's clearly a man. They talk about having a 90-minute session, like a meeting per game, which is so alien to some of these players. Um, and he probably hasn't been able to have that over this December period. Like, so games are so fast that you just can't bombard too much information in that period. So he's probably gone a little bit out of sync. And now he's going to be absolutely, he'll have a little bit of a rest. And I'm really excited for the rest of the season. I just hope if we can get Ramsey. Uh, that's the one for me, frankly. I think he hasn't. God, I don't know if we've rushed him back. I don't know what I think we're. I don't know what's happening with him because he, he hasn't hit the ground running when he's come back. Not that he's been poor, but he just looks like he's been finding his feet. But if he can get back to the levels we saw last season, that'd be almost like having a mini January signing because it would. just missed him. So if we can get him firing for the rest of the season, that is super exciting. And Absolutely. That, yeah. That 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 left hand side, if it can come alive, would be really really helpful. And you're right, Ramsey was fantastic in this in that amazing run we had at the, in in the second half of last season. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, it, it's an interesting one with with Villa. I think um, the second half of the season, as, as you mentioned earlier, kind of like it, I feel like we're in a stage in the evolution of Villa now, and with Unai Emery, where other teams now just accept, okay, Villa are really good at football. Yeah, I've got some top top quality players. We just have to sit. And I think, you know, Sheffield United away at the start of February um, in a city close to our hearts, Webbo, Sheffield, yeah. uh, where we went to university. Um, you know, I can already see it in my head what's going to happen. I, I, they'll do what they did at Villa Park, sit deep and try and hit us on the break. Uh, uh, but I feel like more and more teams are going to start trying to do that and trying to exploit the high line, you know, like when Calvert-Lewin got through yesterday, trying to wait for a moment like that against Villa. Um, so it is just how we adapt to that and whether we can work on routines in the final third that you know lead to goals essentially um it's yeah it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see how villa adapt to this new part of the emery evolution essentially yeah absolutely agree all villa no filler on youtube twitter facebook and instagram welcome back everybody now it's time for this Webbo and I could be on course for the biggest dash-up in London since the Cray Twins got into a row with their rival gangsters. And this is the spicy question, mate. Today, Webbo, I ask you, would selling a major asset this summer for FFP reasons be a major step back for Aston Villa? And by asset, I mean, obviously, a player. <laughs> uh, so in short, yes, I think... 
it's a good day to be having an FFP debate, isn't it? With the news coming from Forest and Everton, and it's some real contrasting views on it. I think if a player doesn't want to leave, but we are forced to sell him, let's say Ollie Watkins, for example, then I think that is really damaging because it completely changes the mood in the squad because it then triggers a self-doubt within everybody. So is this project what I signed up to as an individual? You would then question the whole project. Mm -hmm. If a player, let's say keep Ollie Watkins, asks to leave and then there's an opportunity to sell one of your assets, then it's a different scenario. So it doesn't have to be a huge setback. It just all depends on the scenarios that are put in front of uh, the players and how it can affect the rest of the squad. So I think if we are forced to sell somebody and you are selling somebody against their will, uh, or at least you know, you're putting somebody out there who hadn't shown an interest in wanting to leave, then I think that could really just damage the squad. I think what we've got at the minute now that is working fantastically is everybody looks bought in to this Unai project. There's only, the only one ever source of negativity coming out of the squad is the inanity, you know, the enigma from the bench, Mr. Duran, <laughs> who keeps to delete his Twitter, delete his Instagram, follow a random football club and then tell us how much he loves Villa. He is literally the only player in the squad who I ever read or see anything negative about. There was start of the season, there was some lazy journalism around Yuri Tillemans where he said he wanted to play more. And that was, oh, he's upset. No, he's a professional. He wants to play more football. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely fine. And so everybody feels like they're on the right page at the moment. So if selling an asset were to unsettle that, that for me would be a bigger issue than the actual sale of an asset because ultimately every player can be replaceable um, down the line. So it sounds like from trying to read Chris Heck's interview, they're not worried about FFP in that sort of sense. It doesn't sound like they're worried that they're going to have to sell players. Some of his American star quotes are fantastic when he says, well, well, if a top six club wants to sign one of our players, we'll just go and do it to them, which is the <laughs> sort of attitude I'd expect to hear on a train to Aston on Birmingham New Street before a game from a fan saying, well, well, we should just go and sign Salah then, shouldn't we? <laughs> it's like that sort of mentality. So it's quite refreshing to hear, I don't know, whatever his title is, Mr. Heck coming out with that. But So it feels like we've got it all under control and he is ultimately trying to make sure there's enough money coming into the club. And what's going to be really interesting, I think, Frankie, is how does that make fans feel? So I think our experience as fans is going to change at Villa Park. For Villa to be successful, you look at Newcastle, they they, they, they do not have an issue with money, but they have an issue with FFP. Yeah. So they are trying, it's all about how you monetize the club. And we can, you know, the whole global brand, which they're talking about, he's paused the stadium because he wants to do, he wants to look at it slightly differently. They're going to have more hospitality. They're going to try and do various different things that are diff, uh, that are not what we're used to, how our experience has been going to Villa Park. And um, they, 
talk about how he his in his views in his interview today I was in the papers he said that Aston Villa very very well ran club but they're a Midlands thinking club right they're not global it's my job to take it global so there's one side of my head but I've got my business side so I fully agree with that if we want to be successful we can't be the biggest club in the Midlands that that does not take you to the next level you have to become something unique. You have to become a brand. You have to do all these type of things. You have to get more partners in. You know, we've got Adidas now. You've got to get you've got to get rid of the likes of BK8 or whatever. Oh, God, yeah. You've got to get huge, huge names. They're they're yeah. filming their own show, trying to do a, you know, the, the like a Wrexham-esque documentary and trying to sell that to one of the big brands. That is the way football is developing to try and generate finances. So from a biz, so my business side to my mind fully get that and it's exciting because that is how Villa are going to go forwards. I think we reported profits of something like um, 400,000k for the last year, whereas Man City are reporting something like 30, 40 million. So we're just not competing. But then there's the Villa fan inside of me that loves Villa Park as it is today. There's there's elements of it that we would all like to change uh, and just slightly tweak. But I love going to Villa Park. There's nothing about it that I drastically need to change. It'd be nice to have a, a few bits and pieces here and there. But there's part of me that's worried that my experience of Villa Park could completely change. He talks about how he sees four individual stands at Villa Park and how that isn't the best way forward. I'm like, actually, that's one of the main reasons I love Villa Park. Mm is that it is unique stadium. It's a proper football stadium. It's why I hate going to a Middlesbrough. I hate going to a Southampton because those two stadiums, as an example, couldn't be further apart geographically, but they look exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so to your, so I don't think Southern, so I, I think he has got it under control. So I don't think we're in danger of having a mass sale in the squad. So I think actually everything on the pitch we still should be really excited about. Yeah. And I think as fans off the pitch, it's going to be a challenge in a few years of we all want to be in the Champions League. We all want to com- be competing for trophies. So we are going to have to make personal sort of mind sacrifices as to what Aston Villa experience is to all of us. Mm. Because to compete with Man City, to compete with Liverpool, to compete with Man United, you are going to have to do a little bit more like they do. Mm. And we're all probably on the same sort of mindset that we mock the tourists that go to those games. Mm-hmm. But that's the brand. That's the way that football is developing. You want people to be travelling across the world to watch your team. Yeah. And at this moment in time, there's probably very few people who aren't fans of Aston Villa who travel overseas to watch Aston Villa and there aren't many people going to Aston Villa's club shop and buying a load of merchandise you go to Manchester Frankie on any given day and there'll be coaches full of fans who have been has done a stadium tour at Old Trafford they've done a stadium tour at the Etihad and they've spent hundreds of pounds in both club shops Mm -hmm. that just isn't happening at Villa so I think from an FFP perspective I think it's the fans that are going to have to find a way that if they want to accept success, that is what's going to happen. And I don't know if I'm ready to fully accept it yet, Frankie, because it's not what I've known. It's not, 
like my like I said, every time I go to Villa Park, there's little things I love about it. And if they were to go, like for example, if it was to become a dome-shaped stadium, that would really hurt me. That would really like that isn't Villa Park. It's one of the things that I can laugh at other clubs about. And I can, you know, Villa are a unique club. And I hope that in our bid for success, that we talked about it earlier about that fan enjoyment when we were talking about VAR. I hope that heck and the guys don't forget what Aston Villa means to fans, mm. but also fans have to accept if you want to compete, you are going to have to make some sacrifices. So I think, yeah, yeah so I think my FFP concerns aren't really about on the field because I think it feels like we're in the right position there. And also, so I don't feel like any player is desperate to leave. I just think from a fan perspective, that's where the real challenge is going to come in the next three or four years. Yeah, I think that's brilliantly put. I, I don't even know how to follow that, to be honest. It's like a, a playwright trying to follow Shakespeare or something. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think that was really, really interesting and to get it from the, you know, because you obviously, you go to far more of the games than I go to. And it's uh, fascinating to hear it from your perspective, you know, going to Villa Park much more regularly than I'm, I'm ever able to really. But, um, uh, you know, I think you're exactly right about Villa Park. It, You know, you compare it to Goodison Park, like they're two similarly, you know, tenured stadiums and good as a part looks its age doesn't it and yeah. you know you can see why they're moving to the new ground whereas villa park has somehow aged really well yeah um it's still a stunning stadium i think in a lot of regards yeah. uh and well, frankie i am a hazard when i'm on the road i think it's on the m6 when you're driving southbound and you can see villa park on your right hand side <laughs> I, just yeah. swear, I just can't help but just look at it in awe yeah. and I, my other half sometimes has to grab the wheels I stop varying us to walk <laughs> there's another lane of traffic that you should be watching but I, I yeah I'm as biased as I come I think it's the most beautiful stadium I'll go as far as saying in the world I think it, when you walk towards that whole tent it's amazing isn't it it's yeah. just magical I, I yeah. I'm very, as you will vouch, I'm very sad. I keep an Excel spreadsheet of all the games I go to. So I know I've been to over Villa Park over 500 times. Mm. And still, I get so excited walking from Aston Station right. to the right. ground. I just like the pace I'm walking at at that moment is just so different to every like it. That for me is why I keep going. Like I'm, I just love it. I just can't get enough of it. And I, if that was to change, it would be hard for fans to accept that is how success is but I, I do genuinely think that that is the, the way you have to compete these days is the fans yeah. have to make some sacrifices and I just hope that it's done in the right way yeah no I totally agree it's, it's a like yeah and a first my first ever Villa game was November 92 Norwich 3 Villa 2 annoyingly we lost but <laughs> The, the magic I felt that day has never ever gone away. Like every, you're exactly right. Like I, I must have been over a couple of hundred times as well, and every single time I go there, I just feel the same feeling. It's like going back to childhood. Yeah. Um, and if you if you if you're not a football fan, like I understand people who aren't into football, fine, whatever. But um, I I just do feel like you're missing out on something because it is <laughs> it, it's it's like a connection back to your childhood. You and then. As you grow older, like it's it's still always there, and you yeah. meet new friends through it, and all that. it's just oh, it's fantastic. But um, yeah, I mean, like if, if Villa were to be turned into Villa Park into just a generic bowl, um, that I think mean, no, uh, it wouldn't work for me. But I think it 
if they're able to sort of re redo the stands and improve the concourses and my god the concourses yeah. are a major issue i think um i mean in time uh you know because i I understand why the North Stand got delayed because I think Chrisette was right when he talked about the transport issues. Like, because effectively, if we're adding 10,000 fans to the stadium, yeah. the transport's not there to deal with that yet. So, until that's confirmed and actually built, it's probably unwise to just go ahead and do it and then just lead to even more clogging up of the areas. But I guess one of the hopes is that with the warehouse coming in, maybe then a couple of few thousand fans will be able to stay after the game. Yeah. Well, rather than always having to go straight to that train station stand in those queues for bloody ever um but yeah um until that train station's improved and various other transport issues solved um i can i can see where heck's coming from on the north stand um and also you know we, we're redoing the uh club shop and you mentioned earlier you know those revenues if it's bigger it's more comfortable visiting fans come in they'll spend more money um yeah. as simple as that um but you know it's it's part, it's, the, it's the cynical side of it, isn't it? When you think about it, like you don't want to think of football as like a brand and as spending the, you know, the revenues and all that. But um, you know, like you say, we are hoping to compete at the top, and essentially the only way you can do that, you know, Tottenham make lots of money through their stadium. They make it through various things going on at their stadium through gigs and all this, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, the match day experience that they they have. Well, so yeah, Tottenham's a great example. So. They've just announced that I think it's the Chicago Bears and the Minnesota Vikings are going to play two uh, the other home designated teams. And I follow the NFL and I'm thinking, oh, God, I want to Chicago Bears. I've got a bit of an affiliation with So I want to go and watch Chicago's Bears at Tottenham Stadium. Mm. So, you know, that, and straight away, you, Tottenham are getting money from me because yeah. I want to go and see something else. And I know Villa are trying to do a lot more with summer gigs there as well. Um, but that's the sort of thing you need to have coming in hmm. in order to beat FFP in order to compete on the field. Um, and it's a really interesting, I've had this before, we are, our neighbours have completely ruined our city in the sense of when you hear Aston Villa, you have no idea where it is <laughs> yeah, and the fact yeah. that we're in the same city as one of the worst football teams to have the city's name <laughs> doesn't help at all the reason manchester yeah. city were a success is because manchester united already existed and they were able to build on the ferguson legacy yeah we have absolutely nothing to build on with birmingham city <laughs> Yeah. No, like, nobody's coming to Birmingham. Uh, I I remember Dele... Birmingham City and, and then happened to see Aston Villa. So... I remember Delhi Adibola scoring goals. Um, <laughs> I, like, I my my dad's a, a Blues fan, um, which you know a long story. Uh, yeah. But he uh, he used to call Delhi Adibola Pele, so that was always quite funny. Um, but uh, it's where I, <laughs> obviously where I get it from because I give nicknames to all the Villa players as well. Um, but like, like with FFP, I think. Um, I broad now I've seen a lot of people are against it recently, particularly it's become very vocal from Newcastle fans who are talking about being constrained by it. They can't go where they want. But I broadly agree with FFP only because the main reason it exists is because if Newcastle United didn't have any constraints, what they would do is exactly what Manchester City did 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced Newcastle would bid this transfer window 120 million quid for D for Doug Suiz. Yeah. And they'd offer him three three hundred and fifty grand a week. So what would happen is you'd have the inflation of transfer budget uh, fees again would go up, like when PSG bought Neymar, and the wages would go up again. 
Now, unless there's a wage cap somehow, that's only a wage cap would stop that. But yeah. um, but like I say, like Newcastle would definitely do that. And so essentially, what FFP is, is sort of protecting football from is nation state football clubs, and that it fundamentally comes down to, in my opinion, nation state ownership in football. It just it never should have been allowed because it's just let, it, like. It's absurd what Man City have done in the last ten years for yeah. me. For me, um, it it doesn't feel like they naturally organically got there. It feels like they they did essentially buy their way. Which I know the City fans would hear that and get very annoyed at it. Fine, I get it, you know. But um, you know, and I, so I just I don't know. I, I sort of think that yeah, FFP is there to, to essentially stop Newcastle from just destroying Aston Villa, which yeah. is what they would do. It, that's what it's. I think the most frustrating thing about FFB is that it still seems to have worked out in favour for the big clubs. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that that's is the other side. What's the frustrating? Because what what we just talked about then is, I agree with you on the state-owned and nation-owned thing. But how do Villa? How do Everton? How do Newcastle? How are they meant to? That is. Get, yeah. That's that, right. how to make that step up. Like if you're. If you've got owners who are willing to take those risks, and obviously Newcastle is such a, a rare example or the most extreme example because of how much money Saudi are investing in sports at this moment in time is absolutely absurd. And there is no, it is at this moment in time a bottomless pit. Mm -hmm. So they are the extreme example. We say that can't happen, which is probably accurate. But then every other club is like, well, if our owners are willing to spend this money, why, what, like, how I like that is the only way we can compete. Otherwise, there are in Brighton, for example, are an amazing club ran by a scouting system, but not everybody can seemingly do that. So I'd, I feel like FFP has a right in football because yeah. certainly the Newcastle extreme example, you can't just have somebody who can do that. Mm. Uh, and we did previously, and it, and they've changed the way football will forever be known. Um, but it does feel like now we're just protecting and once yeah. again protecting the top six as it were as people keep saying so as with anything it probably could do with some tweaking um but it's it's there for the right reasons uh, but it still feels like the wrong clubs get punished and the yeah the clubs still succeed it just doesn't quite feel like it's achieved exactly what it was meant to because once you get into those Champions League positions, as Tottenham have done regularly for years, that it what it does for your revenues it just yeah. through the roof, and it is therefore then uh, a more of a locked system totally. And also, you know, one real drawback of FFP is what we mentioned earlier is what some of the sacrifices fans now make. Because surely, if clubs now feel they have to up their revenues as much as they can, that means everything gets more expensive for fans. Essentially, yeah. if you want to compete, so that. That to me is actually the most negative aspect of it. It's probably the impact on the match going fan. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because it, we've had quite a big hike in our season ticket prices, and you, if we are to get top four, top five Champions League football, and that guarantees an extra five home games minimum with this new format that's coming in. Yeah, they may not increase the season ticket prices, but for example, I just bought my ticket for Chelsea away today, which in the cup, which was £38. I would be amazed if a Champions League ticket is less than 40 quid. And we've got five of them. So they're going to be expecting each fan to fork out an additional £200 on top of your season ticket prices just to watch your team in Champions League football. And look, 
it's part of success comes with more games so we have to accept that but the the the, the everyday fan and birmingham is a, a big working class city historically it's going to hit their pockets and they're not yeah. going to be able to enjoy it so so yeah it's I think football's in a really dangerous position at this moment in time with the news coming out with Forrest and Everton and potentially another points deduction and then an appeal. You don't know which season the points deduction is going to be invoked in and stuff like that. And then you've got the VAR nonsense at the moment. It seems like every manager, I I haven't seen too many press conferences where Unai's really bemoaned it which is quite no it doesn't mention oh, uh, but Vincent company I actually feel speaks well he's still really angry about the Villa game he seems to mention it every opportunity he gets it was this ranting it just feels like there's a lot of you know we're right on the precipice of some big things happening in the football like VAR feels like there could be a a vote to get it kicked out FFP if Forrest and Everton get points deduction when is it going to come in again it's just a all a bit of a mess at the moment, and the, and the beautiful game has long gone. Uh, what we fell in love with, so I do think football needs to be a, a bit careful over the next few years, uh, and just to see where it's going. Because with the Champions League reformatting as well, it's, I don't know. There's a lot going on which is turning me off as well. But you know, even though you read these articles, you can't even be bothered to read that because you just sort of know that it's more corruption. So I do think we're actually in a real crossroads moment in in the world of football and i don't yeah. think like frankie are probably going to solve it tonight but maybe one day they'll put us in charge mate i'll tell you what i, I reckon gianni Infantino is listening to this right now he's <laughs> kicking back on his private jet and he's like today i feel like these guys have got the answer uh, we'll get a phone call in the morning me and you will be total sellout suiting up yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll take we'll take the money straight away. <laughs> <laughs> Defending them to the hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just as a final point, just on the original question, I guess as well, like you know, Villa did sell assets. You know, if, if we did sell a Douglas Ruiz for 80, 90 million or God forbid, you know, Jacob Ramsey because he's an academy player and you know he went for sixty million or something. Um, I th- I think. Uh, with Monchi in in the house, um, his track record is sort of unearthing gems for a relatively cheaper rate and then selling them on a few years later for yeah. higher fees. You know, he's unearthed the likes of Danny Alves, for instance, you know. And now we've sort of been linked with this quite, um, Serbian player, uh, Costa... Yeah, <laughs> I think my pronunciation. <laughs> Najelkovic, yeah. I'm going to say. Najelkovic. You know, 9 million quid, 18 years of age. Already played in the Champions League against Manchester City, so clearly a player, you know, real promise. Um, but that to me sounded like a Monchi signing. So I would like to think that if we were to end up having to sell a big player like a, a Douglas Ruiz, that we would hopefully be a bit more future proofed than a lot of other clubs would think, be in these scenarios. And you got to look at it realistically. In that, so I'd rephrase your terminology. I don't think we have to sell, right. but. So Jacob Ramsey's that would be we would have to say that there should be absolutely no reason in the next couple of we re, next couple of seasons that we sell Jacob Ramsey because he's Villa born and bred. He should want to play for the club. We're we're progressing. Dougie Louise on the other example, we have to accept that there are more established clubs in the topper echelons of leagues than Aston Villa. Mm. There's also a certain 
sex appeal to not being in Aston. So a London club, a Tottenham, will always, an Arsenal, will always have a little bit more of an appeal than Aston Villa will to certain individuals. Same with Liverpool, Man United, Man City. These are bigger names in the current history of football than Aston Villa. So you've always got to worry that one, if your players are playing well, and Dougie Louise is probably the obvious name, he's been absolutely superb, and he could walk into arguably all of the Premier League teams. Yeah, it's amazing. That Liverpool midfield would be so much better with Dougie Louise in it, and they're already pretty good. Um, sometimes you are going to, players might get their head turned by that interest, especially mm. if we were to finish sixth and don't get Champions League football. And then a team in Champions League football comes along, you, you could end up losing it. So I would hope we are more future-proof because you have to accept that there always could be players leaving. What I would think now is we've got players who are probably right at the top of their level in where we are, where we are for them throughout the squad. There's only probably one or two, probably three players, actually, I would name that I could really see going to one of those big clubs. And Emmy Martin is... There's the you know, I don't think he would want to leave Aston Villa by any stretch of the imagination, no. but he's good enough to go to oh, a big play for anybody. Incredible. Um, Dougie Louise is the other one, and I think Ollie Watkins, there's not that many strikers around mm. in modern day football. So, I mean, obviously, I think Tottenham just got Timo Werner in, but that's only on loan. So, Tottenham probably going to be in the market for a striker, they never sign anyone to replace Kane. Arsenal struggling to score goals. So there's absolutely no danger that he's going to go in January. Mm. But summer transfer window, if we finished outside the Champions League and Arsenal come knocking on the door of Ollie Watkins, I believe he was an Arsenal fan growing up to an extent, that would tempt him. That would tempt him if the money's there. So you have to, the Monchi and all those guys have to accept that you could always lose players. So I would really hope that they are in their head, they're trying to improve the squad, but accepting that we may lose one or two. And if that comes in, then you do really hike up the price to help your FFPL if that scenario comes around. But I don't think we're in a position where we're going to be offering Watkins to a club because we need to. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're there yet. If we had, if we if we're not in Europe for two or three seasons after this season with the investment we've had, then we will struggle. But you look at where the league table is at the minute, Frankie. If Liverpool win the League Cup, that means it's top six in Europe instantly. Mm -hmm. Look at the point gap to us to seventh and eighth. Yeah. We're almost, don't want to say it too loudly, but it looks like a guaranteed top six, to be quite honest, with the, yeah. with the start we've had and the quality we've got. So we should be in Europe again next season at the bare minimum. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. I, I'm... Um... Yeah, looking forward to seeing how this season develops, really. And, uh, you know, never know, top five could be Champions League as well if um, if Newcastle and Man United hadn't bloody made it harder for everybody. But, you know, um, but yeah, so so whereby that's been an absolutely awesome, spicy question chat. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Um, but, uh, you know, London Lions, we're both part of it. You're chair of the football team. Uh, let us know, how you know, if anybody's out there and wants to get involved, how can they get involved? Yeah, so there's a few various different ways. So like, as you mentioned during the call, we meet up at the Yak Bar uh, near Elephant and Castle to, to watch games that are on the TV. We have a football team. If you want to play for the men's football team, we've got Inter Milan, 
fan club this coming Sunday at Commons, Commons Field. You can reach out to Frankie via this podcast or you can look for London Lions on various different socials. Uh, and yeah, always people welcome to come and have a beer and watch the game. Or if you want to play football, then we probably could do with a few extra players some of the games. I'm sure you would agree, Frankie. Particularly young players. That would be <laughs> young, fit professionals. People who, can run. <laughs> yeah, that would be ideal. Yeah. Okay, thank you everybody for listening. I've been your host, Frankie Maguire and Webbo. Thanks again for coming on the show. No problem, mate. Speak to you soon. And it's goodbye from me. We'll be back again soon. But until then, come on, super Aston Villa.